This episode is brought to you in part by Vocal Majority Bassoon and Oboe Camp. Vocal Majority Bassoon and Oboe Camp is excited to announce the 2017 summer camp season is open for enrollment. Vocal Majority is a camp where double read students of all levels, beginner through advanced, can come learn how to make reads and play chamber music. Their 20 nationwide locations include Chicago, Virginia, California, Ohio, Las Vegas, Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, and Abilene. Campers learn read making, participate in chamber music groups, attend master classes covering special topics and repertoire, and work with the best teachers in our field. From beginner to undergraduates, Vocal Majority has three camp divisions to suit students' needs. Vocal Majority is thrilled to feature Aaron Hannigan as their advanced camp oboe professor at the Dallas location this summer. Visit www.vocalmajority.com for details and dates. When I was in high school, I would have loved to have the opportunity to, to play for somebody like Aaron Hannigan. Um, it's so fun and developmentally beneficial to be around people who are passionate about the same things as you are, especially since as double read players, we tend to be pretty isolated in our high schools. We may be the only ones or maybe there's a, a couple other people who love and do the same things that we do. So this is a fantastic opportunity to meet other people who enjoy oboe and bassoon as much as you. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Jackie. Welcome to episode seven. Hey, Gilly. How's it going? Oh, it's very good. It's very early in the morning while we're recording this. For me, I know you've already been up for like five and a half hours. (laughs) 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 But I'm fine. I'm here. I've got my coffee and in my favorite mug, which is um, a reproduction of a Mondrian painting with cats in it. So I'm good. I'm ready to go. Well, I dropped my coffee walking into my office and spilt it all over so I'm hoping that's not an omen for how the rest of the day is going to go (laughs) I'm so sorry I would be so sad (laughs) I was there may have been a a loud yell coming from my office thankfully I was here earlier than the rest of my colleagues (laughs) oh that's so sad it's okay maybe you can reward yourself with Starbucks later or something yes well Speaking of energy, I don't know about you, but it seems like at the beginning of the semester, energy is just very high and everyone's ready to go. And especially for spring semester, we're all coming off of New Year's resolutions and that type of thing. And then inevitably, it seems like everyone, me, my students, hits a semester slump where... Free midterm. Yes. Yeah. Where everyone's getting sick, everyone's tired, the energy is lacking, and so we kind of thought it might be fun to talk about ways to get your mojo <laughs> to fight off that semester slump. Yes, I love it. And actually, why don't we just combine these with shout-outs for this week, since it's kind of shouting out a bunch of our strategies. We can just combine those segments today. Sounds good to me. Cool. So what's one way that you get your mojo back when you're feeling the slump? So one of my favorite things to do is um, to look at inspiring media, Um, whether it's an awesome documentary about punk rock or um, like even just looking on social media to see what my amazing friends are doing. I'm like, oh my God, she's doing that. He's doing that. That's so cool. I want to do that. And then it totally gets me out of my slump, (laughs) usually. Yeah, definitely. That's something I do as well. I love watching things where people are hustling for their dream. And Mm -hmm. it's so inspiring to me. I love 
um, even TV shows like Project Runway, you know, where it's these um, creative people making things and um, forging their personal aesthetics and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I also love documentaries about athletes because uh, I feel like there's a lot of parallels between um, athletics and music. There's a great Serena Williams documentary on Hulu <gasps> right now. Um, oh my god, I have to watch it. It's like instant mojo, so I highly recommend that. Um, yeah. Oh, and the Horn Hangouts. Ooh, yes, I love Horn Hangouts. Tell our yeah. listeners about Horn Hangouts. So the Horn Hangouts are run by the fourth horn of the Berlin Philharmonic, uh, Sarah Willis. And you can find the Hangouts on her website. And if you just Google, you can find it really easily. Um, But she basically does these live Google Hangouts interviewing um, these amazing world-famous brass so soloists and orchestral players worldwide. I mean, it's, you know, she, she travels all over the world doing this and you, you can watch it um, streaming and you can also watch it later on. And people write in um, real time with questions and then the, the person she's interviewing will answer the questions like as they come in. And it is so inspiring to listen to how these amazing, talented, successful musicians practice and how their careers have been structured and what their goals are and how they feel about what they're doing and their advice. And it's just so inspiring. Every time I feel a slump, I'm like, oh, it's time for a horn hangout. Uh, another resource that I love um, is the Missy Copeland documentary or the, um, another one about ballet is called First Position. And I believe those both are on Netflix. And yeah, watching dancers is this kind of perfect intersection between athletes and artistry that I always find super inspiring. Absolutely. Uh, what else do you have for building up your mojo? Um, pump myself up. So when it doesn't work to look to other people and, uh, be inspired by their awesomeness, it's helpful to remind ourselves of our own awesomeness. So one thing I love to do, and I always do this right before a big performance is I write down a list of things that I am proud of that I have accomplished. And that's lovely. It really helps to remind myself like, um, in a, if I'm feeling self-doubt, to just kind of put down tangible things I've accomplished, um, that I've done, compliments that have stayed with me throughout the years. So I call it my pride list. And there are times I'll just sit down and, and remind myself of things I have um, to be proud of in my life. What oh, about that's you? so sweet. Well, if I'm like driving to a gig that I'm a little bit nervous about, Um, in the car, I'll put on the Hamilton soundtrack and I'll just put the song, my shot on repeat, (laughs) um, just like really fast paced, like, um, you know, stuff about people like achieving their dreams and grasping the opportunities there that are available. Yeah, I'm a native person, as our listeners may or may not know, and so my pump-up music is A Tribe Called Red, who is this DJ crew who um, remixes powwow music uh, in a club style, and yes, it definitely makes me feel like I am a warrior who can conquer the world with my bassoon. That's right, and it's true. (laughs) (laughs) What else do we do? Um, So I have exercise slash body's choice because let's be real sometimes ain't got no energy right to exercise so sometimes <laughs> being a snail on my couch is the kindest thing that I can do for myself <laughs> yeah definitely I mean a lot of our guests have talked about the importance of exercise and making that time and I know um mentally exercise can be just as beneficial as physically you know taking some quiet time to just think and be almost in this meditative state um but there are times when I put a lot of pressure on myself to be super productive right and it's overwhelming by the amount of things that I have or even just the amount of pressure I'm putting on myself is overwhelming and I'll fight against this fatigue and it'll be like no I I gotta I gotta do this thing I gotta do this thing and I found that yeah we call it body's choice um this notion of you know if your body's telling you it needs to rest maybe if you just take a half hour or an hour to relax and to chill out, you'll when you come back to your work, you'll be that much more productive than if you had pushed through 
for the sake of, you know, this productivity you felt you had to achieve. You'd be even mm-hmm. faster if you just take time to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What else you got? Well, I am the organizational queen. True. So um, <laughs> a lot of times I will set my schedule. Um, I know Daryl talks about this in the interview as well, but um, every night I look at my following day and what is involved in it. Okay, I have this many meetings and lessons and classes to teach. And so that means my practice time needs to happen here and here. And this other thing I need to get done happens here. And so I wake up with the schedule in mind. And some people might find that a source of pressure. I personally find it like a goal. Okay, can Uh I get every, can I stick to this schedule? If I stick to the schedule, I'll get X, Y, and Z done, and I'll be in really great shape for the next day. And so it's kind of like um, tapping into my competitive nature in a positive way, again, competing with myself Uh uh, to be like, okay, can I stick to the schedule? And it's an objective. And then every time I do, you know, okay, at nine o'clock, I was supposed to be doing this, and I am. It's like I'm winning as I progress throughout my day. Yeah, I love that. I think I could do a lot more of that because, you know, as was my New Year's resolution to prioritize my musicianship, sometimes I get to the end of the day and I'm like, what happened? What Mm -hmm. did I do? And it was because I just didn't have a clear idea of when my blocks of time were, Mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden they're gone because I got, you know, sucked into doing something else during my free 35 minutes or whatever it happened to be. So yeah, I think that's awesome. I think that's really awesome to just make sure that you, you, um, fill your day with the most important things. Right. And I think you make a good point that our uh, schedules have to be flexible. You know, there are going to be things that pop up in our day that we can't anticipate, especially if you're in your office, you're going to get the inevitable knock, 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 Dr. Wilson, Dr. Kaunitz, you know, and that's an important um, part. I had one read and someone <laughs> broke it in half. <laughs> exactly. And that's an important part of what we do is uh-huh. serve our students and are available to our students. Um, so what type of positive affirmations do you make use of when, uh, you know, you're feeling like what happened? Where did that chunk of time go? Or I didn't get as much done as I wanted to. How do you pull yourself out of that? Well, I usually have to take a deep breath because that is something that causes me great anxiety. So I will take a deep breath and I'll say, okay, this was one day. I didn't do so great today, but I have, I can do better tomorrow because tomorrow has not happened yet. I cannot assume that tomorrow is going to be as bad as today because if I assume that, then it will be. So, you know, just trying to stay positive in my head about the possibilities to fix it the next day, you know, just to maybe tweak some things and, you know, uh, just altering things slightly so that I can make a bigger effort to prioritize the things that I need to prioritize, you know, just saying, okay, I forgive myself for what happened today. And then tomorrow I can do better. Yeah. That's all we can do is Mm -hmm. be forgiving with ourselves and try our best. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you in part by Gender Read Knives. Right out of the box, Gender Read Knives are the sharpest knives on the market. Each original Gender Read Knives is handcrafted using traditional Asian knife making techniques. Japanese steel is first forged into shape hollow ground and then hardened to Rockwell 5860, making the edge on the blade very strong yet durable. Each blade is then polished and hand sharpened to perfection using shaped in professional sharpening stones up to 8000 grit. They even personalize your reed knife before sending it. You can choose a right handed, left handed or straight burr and choose which color sheath you'd like. I own multiple Genda knives, and I really love the 15K knife. It's sharpened to a whopping final grit of 15,000 using shaped in professional sharpening stones. This knife handles with extreme precision and effortlessness. 
capable of removing minute whispers of cane or purging unwanted masses from a reed. I actually let one of my students borrow this knife and try it out and she is trying not to give it back. She just loves this reed knife so much. So I'm going to have to, you know, bribe or find some way to get this knife back in, in my possession. Um, but yeah, it's uh, super resistant to rust and has a lot of edge retention and so I really like the 15k you use Gendy knives too don't you Galit? I do I have a few and I like all of them and I was especially interested in trying the student reed knife um they have knives at different price points and this is one of the most affordable ones um it is really beautiful the you know the blade is made with precision and the handle is really lovely and it feels nice in your hand um, and it keeps its edge really well and it's easy to sharpen and I think it'd be great for beginning reed makers who are just starting out on their reed making journey and they need good equipment to do so. So visit www.gendaindustries.com to check them out today. This episode is brought to you in part by JDW Sheet Music. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber music pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, please visit jdwsheetmusic.com. So our guest for today's episode is Daryl Hale, assistant professor of bassoon at Louisiana State University and a friend of the podcast. It was so awesome to have him on. Wow, he was so great. So generous with his time and his thoughts. Yeah, I found this interview to be particularly inspiring and insightful. And so, you know, without too much ado, I think we just get to it and let our listeners have it. Let's do it. Yeah. Daryl, welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here with you today. So my first question for you is just a basic, can you introduce ourselves to our listeners and maybe tell us how you got started playing the bassoon and uh, where uh, you received your education and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, um, so... I'm currently the assistant professor of bassoon at Louisiana State University, and I've been here for about four years. I'm also the principal bassoon of the Baton Rouge Symphony. And um, before I was here in Louisiana, I had a one-year position uh, as the acting principal bassoon of the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, So my path to the bassoon, I think, is probably a pretty common one. I started as a clarinet player. Uh, I grew up in Denver, and uh, we had the benefit of a pretty good public school music program. Um, So I started on the clarinet in fifth grade, and somewhere in sixth grade, I looked around and realized there were a lot of clarinet players, and that kind of bummed me out. And uh, (laughs) I I felt like I needed something different, and I had had an excellent, excellent um, general music teacher in elementary school. And we did a section on all the instruments, and um, I heard the bassoon, and I think it was just kind of love at first listen, so to speak. Um, I really benefited from having uh, very supportive grandparents. Uh, My parents are both blue-collar, so they weren't really arts people, necessarily. They weren't musicians or artistically inclined, Um, but they valued that kind of expression. So we got piano lessons growing up and taken to the symphony with a, you know, pretty regularly. I mean, a couple times a year. And uh, I remember being really drawn to the, like, kinetic or um, body feel of being close to bass instruments. We used to sit in the cheap seats behind, in Betcher Hall behind the bass section. And you kind of feel the vibration coming off the bases. So I think low sounds were always kind of in my ear. Um, So I started kind of 
experimenting with the bassoon in middle school and um, didn't really take it all that seriously. I was kind of a quick learn on a lot of instruments and I got into high school and I ended up playing, you know, kind of whatever instrument was needed. I played bass in the jazz band and oboe. <clears throat> yeah, oboe. Oh boy. In the, in the, in, in the lower band. Um, I'd never liked playing oboe. It always felt like my head was going to explode. Uh, all that back pressure. Never really, fi- never really figured out that read support balance thing. And then, of course, bassoon. And then I, I got to the end of high school, and I, I wasn't really studying privately yet. And, you know, that kind of that question, what are you going to do when you go to college? Um, and all my friends were engineers, and I thought that that was kind of where I was headed. Um, even though I was probably more of a social sciences person, I really loved history and psychology and philosophy. Um, and then I took calculus and decided that engineering was probably not for me. <laughs> and uh, maybe music was the thing that I couldn't give up. You know, I, it had been the common thread for me for my whole life, and uh, I, I couldn't really see my life without it. And I'm not sure I really understood what studying music meant at that point, but um, I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Colorado, where I studied with Dr. Uh, Yoshi Ishikawa, and he, um, I was probably a sapphire in the mud when I got there, uh, but he saw something and was able to develop me fairly quickly once I got there and actually had some instructions and learned how to make reeds and got an instrument that wasn't a like three Schreiber bassoons put together into one, which is what I've been playing in high school. Um, so ended up buying a nice Fox bassoon and um, progressed rather quickly. And then, um, which I might, I mean, to back up, my story is really a story of uh, great teachers and being very fortunate of finding um, not just teachers, but mentors, people that really invested their time and energy into, into me as an artist. And I've been very fortunate that way. Um, Yoshi was one of the first. And then um, my junior year, he went on sabbatical. And we had an interim teacher who encouraged me to apply to Aspen, the Aspen Music Festival, where I studied with Per Hannibold. Um, who was kind of the next really formative teacher that I had. Um, and he was very different from Yoshi, uh, which kind of helped balance me out. And I got a lot of experience playing an orchestra while I was in Aspen. And uh, I'm a rather outdoor person, so it kind of was a great place for me to spend that summer. And then I came back and auditioned for uh, grad schools, and that interim person had um, studied with Bill Winstead at CCM. And I was really just taken with, um, especially the read method that I learned from him. This is Adam Swalier. I believe he's a neurosurgeon now. Um, very smart guy. And I was just really, uh, I love the kind of um, deep structural look that uh, was applied to read making and music making. It really appealed to me. Um, and so I went and had a lesson uh, with Mr. Winstead still kind of weird to call him Bill, and uh, was lucky enough to get in um, and, you know, to study with him. Now, my path took a little bit of a strange turn there. Um, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma between my undergraduate and my graduate study. So I took, wow. a, I took a year off and did... Uh, you know, all the things you do when you get cancer, uh, so chemotherapy and radiation, which were ultimately unsuccessful. And then I um, had a stem cell transplant, which was successful. So it would be 10 years clean, so to speak, here in April. Uh, I mentioned that because I didn't play bassoon for that year. And um, I have developed several kind of physical problems that uh, made musicianship kind of difficult. But I, I got done with that, and, you know, it kind of wiped myself clean. I think, you know, when you study music, you start to associate yourself with your musical self, and um, it was an interesting experience to be kind of wiped of that, you know, that to learn that I was something that was separate from my, you know, kind of creative life. 
and uh, but then to choose to return to it. So when I cho- when I chose to go back into music after that time off, I felt um, kind of liberated from some of the misconceptions that I had about music making and about myself involved in the process. Uh, we might talk later about some other misconceptions that came up later, but that's that was an int- I, that was kind of the moment where I I think I finally decided that music was it that I had to, no matter how difficult the path was, I had to kind of stick with it. And, um, and I say that now I, I reached the most important person in my development, and that is Bill Winstead, because um, he was willing to take on the task of rebuilding me out of the ashes, so to speak. And I'm not sure there are very many people that um, could have done it as well as he did. Uh, he has a very um, thoughtful and uh, I don't know, just deeply intuitive way of teaching. And uh, he was able to help me solve, get around some problems that I have um, and turn me into you know, a successful uh, musician. And I owe a, a great deal to him, um, both as a person and as a player. So my time at CCM, I did a master's degree there and a, most of a doctorate, hopefully all of a doctorate. Uh, and then when I got done with my coursework, I ended up, I was doing a lot of freelancing in the area and playing a ton. I was a fellow at Aspen, so uh, I would be remiss if I neglected mentioning that, you know, during that kind of reconstruction period, uh, Pear Hannibal played a huge role. Um, he had me back to Aspen and really encouraged me to keep, you know, working and dealing with the difficulties that I was having. Believed, you know, in uh, my ability to become a musician and was just deeply supportive of with both time and knowledge um, there. So between those two places, I felt like I really had a, a, a lot of support and a lot of space to um, grow in kind of an organic direction with what I was able to do. And then I ended up getting the job in Knoxville, um, just kind of a being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I feel like most of my life has just been luck in that way. And, um, yeah, and then the job opened up here at Louisiana State. I'd always heard great things. Of course, you know, Bill Ludwig was here for a long time, and Gabriel Beavers was here before me. Um, And I think I'm actually only the fourth bassoon teacher here, because John Patterson, before uh, Bill Ludwig, was here for many, many, many years. So it's a real honor to be kind of in this position and in a line of kind of great bassoon playing here. So that's a very long answer to a short question, but <laughs> you'll probably find that's how I am. So, yeah. Um, you know, you say a, a lot of what you've done is luck, but in listening to that story, the common thread to me is this um, perseverance and this notion of having to catch up. You know, I think a lot of us can relate to the first part of your story of maybe we come to the bassoon um, late in comparison to other um, instruments, um, or we get serious about it later. That was certainly, you know, the case with me. There was one thing that was acceptable in high school and then college was this whole other thing. And so having to learn to kind of catch up to the level that we're supposed to be at. Um, but so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, how you approached this notion of gaining back time lost. And, you know, in, in talking about your battle with lymphoma, not many of our listeners are going to be able to relate to that, but I think we all have moments where we go, it's over, you know, it's not going to happen. Maybe Mm. we don't get that job or we don't get that assistantship or we graduate and the job's not waiting right away or whatever it is, right? There's some opportunity we don't get where we have this intense doubt of if this path we've been embarking on is actually going to come to fruition and it seems like there's this kind of warrior Daryl (laughs) you know who has said no it's going to happen and so could you talk about you know what you said to those younger versions of yourself to get to that to this point that you're at now absolutely yeah um a lot I mean I agree that it's kind of an extreme case perhaps but I I recognize that I think most of us at some point are going to come up against that am I going to make it question? Um, there's a, I think there's a lot to talk about here, but let's see if I can be somewhat concise. Um, 
first off, I think that, you know, we talk, a few people have talked about, you know, if you can do anything else, you should do anything else. And I think one of the things that was made clear to me is that I actually had to face that question. I, I came to this place where the plane was really open. And I, I think if you can actually honestly ask yourself, answer that question and you know, ask and answer that of yourself, that uh, that's a really important moment for anyone who's going to go into a creative endeavor. Uh, because I think the, there's a point of kind of submitting to the art, you know, and saying, okay, you know, it's going to be a question of when, not if. And that's the way I, I looked at things when I started back, you know, that I have to give myself enough space to see if I can really do it, honestly. And if I'm constantly end-gaining, if I'm constantly saying, okay, I'm not good enough, I'm not in this position, I'm not X, Y, or Z, I'm really keeping myself from working honestly with where I am, you know, being really present with what you're doing and present with the process of what you're doing. And one of the things I learned from Bill is really the process of art, the process of practice, the process of creation. And that if you focus on your process of how you practice, how you um, conceptualize sound, how you make reads, how you organize your life, how you enrich yourself, how you balance yourself, then eventually you will find yourself in a space with an opportunity. And I, I think when I say luck, and I mean, I, I do mean luck in, in the sense that like the right people have come into my life at the right time. And that, um, you know, I say this to my students a lot when they're not practicing, you know, the teacher appears when the student is ready. Um, and I think I had to be ready, but I was, you know, serendipitously there. I needed Bill at that point. I'm, I'm very convinced that few other people could have done what he did. Um, so, you know, but then luck is actually opportunity meeting preparedness. So if you focus yourself on being on preparing on the process of what you do and kind of leave the concern about whether you're going to make it aside as much as you can, you know, try to separate that from, you know, the, you know, it's, it was an interesting realization for me to realize. I think when I was younger, I looked at people perform and go, Oh, it's this spontaneous inspirational moment. You know, they, they come out on stage and they're touched by the universe and they create when really it's this kind of like day by day incremental process, you know, that every day you get up and you play your scales and you interpret and you get, you add a layer to what you're doing and you build a layer and you build a layer and you build a layer. And that's how you end up having the ability to touch people. Um, once I understood that, um, and then submitted to that idea that in order to do and to fully realize what it is I do, that I needed to do it every day in a way that cultivated that. And that my what I brought into my practice and what I brought into myself as a person, whether that's taking care of myself or um, you know, reading books or listening to recordings or looking at art or having conversations with good friends, it's all aimed at that process of being able to draw that into what I can put out of the instrument. Um, and so I think that I found a lot of comfort in that idea um, you know, and I, it's a tough thing to do and I'm not saying that I did it all the time at that level, but it was a place I kind of tried to return to and they just say, you know, if you're patient with yourself, it's a matter of when, not if. And so if you can keep doing the work, you will find that when moment will come. And, uh, that's, I mean, that's where I was. I, I can't account to a total degree for the amount of kind of stubbornness that I have. Um, <laughs> as far as, you know, there's, there is kind of a, you said warrior. I mean, there is this just kind of like don't defiant part of me um, that I think a lot of musicians have, you know, that you come up against the challenge and you go, okay, like this is an inanimate object. <laughs> like it's not going oh, to, I love that. it's not going <laughs> to defeat me, you know, like the instrument serves me. I don't serve it. And, um, you know, but I find that those kind of, you know, I, I think about things a lot and I think it's probably already clear. Um, but I, I think having those kind of like broad philosophical 
direct like underpinnings to what you do can be very helpful in those moments or just help you choose what to you know give your attention to and uh it's it also kind of helps us eventually when you get to that point when after you've learned your fundamentals and you've developed yourself to a point when you have to ask yourself like what kind of musician am i you know when you find your voice um and i'm sure that both of you have been through this when you start to kind of, what is my identity? What is my place in this world mm -hmm. look like? It can give you a way of orienting yourself that maybe is different than your teacher or different than the people around you. And that helps also to create your space. You know, eventually there's a space where what you do, if you've cultivated it, honestly, um, there's going to be a space for what you do. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, Hopefully, an answer to your question. <laughs> Look, Daryl Hale taking us to church today. <laughs> <laughs> so, my question, um, based off of what you've been saying, I mean, you've come back from really intense um, physical, emotional, and mental challenges. I mean, just like existential challenges. And what would you what would you recommend or what have you used that works the best to center yourself in all of those areas? I mean, physically, it's really important for musicians to be strong. Um, and then emotionally, like we've talked about, it can be really tough. And then just having a mental center. And what do you do for all of that? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, if you look at what we do, um, it's you know, an exercise in vulnerability and, uh, and a physical exercise too, as well. So there's just kind of this mind body thing that goes on. Um, so currently, uh, I work out about four times a week. Uh, I've run a marathon in the last couple of years, uh, just to try to keep myself physically strong. Um, you know, I, I have some kind of extreme I don't know about extreme, but some larger problems uh, with lung capacity and um, just some numbness. So there's a lot of strength. Just having general body strength, I find, is very uh, helpful for me. Um, along with that, then, is probably being okay, sure that I, I just, uh, you know, feed myself um, in, in kind of a number of ways. So I meditate pretty regularly. I found that mindfulness practice, which has been talked on talked about on here before, is extremely important. Uh, it gives me space to kind of evaluate my thoughts and to get my arms around some of the like the nastier ones, like doubt and fear, and to kind of understand their size and shape. And uh, so it's a it's, it's also a space for me to listen to myself, you know, especially on busy days with teaching and playing. I feel like a lot goes out and I, sometimes I have to check back with myself. So if I find if I regularly do that, I'm able to get ahead of some of those like kind of more destructive thoughts. I'm getting, doubt, I think is like a, a big one that we all deal with. And I mean, doubt can be just really damaging um, when it's gone unchecked because it starts to like predict the future. And uh, I'm sure we've all had that experience of, you know, worrying about playing a wrong note and then having it appear, you know. And so that kind of creating a space where, like, you know, maybe not daily, but every other day I'm checking in. Um, the busier I get, then it sometimes it's twice a day. And I'm about ready to go into a cycle of recitals. And so part of that is revisiting, spending time with myself, just sitting and listening to myself internally and listening to what the dialogue is and trying to kind of ask the question to myself, is that true? And then I ask it again, really, is it true? And then ask myself, well, what if you didn't think that, you know, oh, I'm probably not good enough to go for this job. Is that true? You know, what if I didn't think that? Would it be possible? Trying to kind of break the limits on myself. Um, so that, I mean, that uh, yoga is extremely helpful. Uh, especially for bassoonist, I'm sure for the oboe as well. I mean, any sitting in a reed desk, you know, is not always great for us. I mean, uh, depending on your size, um, I've got a couple of really tiny bassoon players here. And so absolutely from day one, we've been talking about Alexander technique and yoga. Um, I 
should probably um, acknowledge James Brody as well, um, who's the he was the oboe professor at uh, Colorado University of Colorado. He's now mainly the Alexander and Wellness teacher. Uh, he did a ton of work with me when I was coming back to playing um, with Alexander technique and breathing, and so that was extremely helpful. Um, learning how to use the capacity that I had. Um, and a lot of about efficiency. Um, so, you know, all those things, I mean, you know, the quality, if you look at, you know, the output of what we do is kind of the ultimate goal is to touch people and to be, be able to go into a space where people are watching you and to be vulnerable and open and invite them to join you in what you're trying to say, whether that's Mozart aria or the Berio Sequenza. Um, you know, it requires then kind of just cultivating that idea in your other areas of your life. So in your relationships and, you know, everything that you do. So I really try to take a rather holistic approach at looking, you know, how I interact with the world and working with vulnerability and working with um, understanding myself. And that's not always easy. I mean, it's, it's something that I fail at pretty continuously. Uh, but the act of failing is, you know, can be very informative too. So, yeah, I, I here again, I think that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, <see>. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so I hear you talking a lot about the importance of work-life balance and achieving that, um, which means you really need to make the most of your practice time. So could you talk about your approach to practicing and how you structure your sections? and how you structure your sessions and that type of thing? Absolutely. Um, this is something I think about a lot, uh, especially since coming to LSU. Uh, in the orchestra, I had kind of like large swaths of time sometimes, and uh, I could kind of be luxurious in my practice. I don't have that now. So um, I think, so I, we'll talk on like a practical level, and then I'll maybe a, a larger level. I use something kind of similar to bullet journaling, actually, uh, with my practice, uh, for those of you that are familiar with that technique. Um, meaning, so, so I plan my practice uh, ahead of time. Uh, so I, every Sunday night, I try to sit down and look at the hours that I've got in the week, look at the repertoire that I have, you know, kind of short-term, mid-term, long-term, and uh, look at my kind of technique regimen that I've got and try to plan out what I do. Um, the older I get, the more I practice fundamentals, the more I just want to have freedom on the instrument, the more I just, I want to be able to think of something, I shorten that distance between the impetus and the execution, right? So that when I think about something, I don't have to think about, oh, I have to put my tongue here and my third finger has to come up and my air has got to be a little bit more compact. Um, you know, that, that kind of thought process that conscious knowing what to do kind of subsides and then I can go into unconscious knowing that, you know, that pitch will just come out with that timbre and that kind of vibrato because I thought about it. I mean, like I conceptually are, you know, audiated that sound rather than I thought about putting down the buttons and blowing. Um, so trying to shorten that gap is like one of my major practice goals um, when I'm learning repertoire so that I examine stuff deeply enough to where that happens with a little bit more, um, well, that connection is, is shorter. Um, so fundamentals start to take over <laughs> when that happens. So I use a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, right now, uh, the Kovar book is on my stand and Piard is on my stand. Uh, the Milda scale studies are pretty much a constant companion. And uh, I think some weeks I treat them like they're, I don't want to say unmusical, but they're very rigid. And other weeks I treat them like they're, I'm Casals and they're a cello suite. And I try to draw as much music out of them as possible. Um, yeah. And then, you know, so by, by, by planning out my practice um, very uh, deliberately, I end up spending, you know, I'll break pieces down into really small chunks, be sure I work on them kind of, I tend to be a deconstructionist to tear the music apart, understand the, the chord structure, the note structure, and then build it back 
so I can internalize. The, the goal is to get the piece to sound like it comes out of me rather than off the page or um, is kind of radioed in, as one of my teachers used to say, you know, like you kind of tune the dial and then it, it sounds like you're playing a radio rather than you're really there with what you're doing. Um, so that ends up being a goal. Um, I'm just learning a new instrument. I got a new bassoon recently. And so I think maybe more of my practice now is also just kind of trying to understand the corks of a new setup. And, uh, you know, but I think that students miss that sometimes that, you know, one of the first things you have to do in the morning is get in the room with your instrument and yourself and kind of figure out where you are. You know, uh, are you, is your air there? Is your reed adjusted? Um, are you able to sing? Do you have the flexibility and stability of intonation that you'd like to have? Um, and then working on ways to get there to that place more quickly. So that's a nice rambling answer, but that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but I find I, the organization of it has really set me free. And I, I find that weird. I know, Jackie, that you're a very organized person. Oh, I yeah. live. I live my life. I live my life on the opposite end of the spectrum, and uh, <laughs> me too, Daryl. <laughs> I found though that by here again, it's kind of submitting to the structure, and um, it set me free to, you know, to kind of. Um, it's made me much more productive in this place, and so organization has set me free. Is kind of like one of my slogans of the moment here. That by doing that, I've. I'm actually much more, I've been much more calm in my performances lately because I know I've been practicing with like kind of that out there in the future and then building the piece up. So I know that I've worked on the, with the most difficult parts really deeply for enough time. And uh, that's been a nice feeling and to have that kind of confidence that strong fundamental practice and really thoughtful organization has given me. I resisted that for a very long time as kind of maybe, I don't know, unartistic, but I think it really has actually done the opposite for me. So, um, yeah, it's been very, it's been an interesting thing to do. I have to say that, you know, you may somewhat be an inspiration to that. I know that I've watched you post some things about your organization and I think, man, I really got to get on the ball. There are other people, <laughs> there are other people out there, you know, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the thought that's what's neat about you know, some of this that you guys are doing. I, I hear, I found myself listening to a lot of, I mean, just about everybody, but I mean, it's maybe Tony Marie was the the best example, just nodding my head the whole time. Mm -hmm. you know, going, yeah, that, that just I, exactly. That's it. So, mm -hmm. so I have a sort of follow-up question. Um, you talked about your warm-up routine and some books that you like to use. Um, do you have, favorite repertoire that you like to assign as teaching tools? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I'm fairly reactionary in that, in that way. Um, especially at the undergraduate level, I, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, we have to understand our roots. You have to understand the best parts of what has happened before the, the I've already mentioned them, but this Milda scale, scale studies, I, remember loathing them when I was an undergraduate and now I can't hardly go a day without playing one. Um, they just end up and then the summer I do all kinds of crazy stuff with them, change the articulations, change the rhythms, you know, just use them as kind of like a, you know, they, they remain the same and I, and I change. I think they're like a nice litmus test for where I'm at as a bassoon player. You know, if I can put the metronome on 30 and that is, you know, in a three, uh, for exercise and that's the bar or put it on 30 and it's the 441 and that's the bar and still play fluidly through them. And they, there's all these things you can do with them. They just become this great flexible tool for us. Um, I like to assign my, uh, you guys had, were um, promoting Andrew's CD, I guess, in one of those uh, late episodes earlier. Um, and it just reminded me how much I love his playing and how much I love assigning art song to my, younger mm -hmm. students to help loosen them up. I tend to use Mahler, uh, the songs of the Wayfair. Um, but, you know, getting them to understand, you know, how syllabic diction, you know, can be translated into speech 
or into your playing to give it a nice speech-like quality to help you phrase. Um, I use a lot of that in my teaching, uh, you know, putting words onto silly words onto melodies. Uh, the one the kids laugh about is the Andante and Hungarian Rondo, which is, you know, I want you, I need you to do my laundry. You know, <laughs> need you to do my laundry. You know, but it, but it sets up the right kind of feel because you don't want to, you would never say, I want you, need you. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and that, I mean, that's a big thing from Bill. Um, I have, all my kids in, uh, as freshmen play Vivaldi. Um, it's just a great teaching tool to talk about harmonic structure, to talk about articulation, talk about flicking. Uh, it's something we can do in lessons. We can play as a duet. You know, I can play the bass line and they can kind of get a sense of how to play with another person without mimicking exactly what I'm doing. You know, we're not playing the same line, but they get to start to build sound, a sound concept. Um, so those get used. I use um, I use non Mozartian classical concerti uh, to help build classical style, uh, and I try to avoid the Mozart until they're sophomores, uh, just because I think it's such a you know important piece for us. I get a bit frustrated when people come in, you know, with already bad habits built into it. So it's best for us to kind of approach how to play that style without that piece in hand. Uh, so that ends up being a big piece. We always do the French repertoire, uh, the Galan, the Noel Galan. I mean, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's the piano parts out of print right now, so I've got my PDF, thankfully. Um, yeah, and then for the older students, we end up doing PR, and you know, Uberdu sits on the stand and taunts them, and uh, that's that's. I mean, it's all pretty standard stuff. We do. The undergrads work in the scale study book and in Weisenborn to start. Um, it's hard to in, improve upon those. A lot of times, graduate students will start with the first page of the Weisenborn method. Um, I'm probably like giving away a trick here, but um, the very first page, you know, where it's like whole note C, whole rest, whole note C. And, you know, suddenly that becomes a huge challenge. <laughs> and that's a, a way of kind of like showing them that, you know, technical practice, um, you know, to achieve the musical goal is so important. I mean, if you can't start and stop a note the way that you want the note to sound, that's a problem. Um, so that, that ends up being, you know, kind of a, a gateway towards, you know, working on these other issues. Well, I just want to, at this time, give a shout out to the uh, LSU bassoons, because I remember <laughs> um, your headshot is um, <laughs> with the boot joint of the bassoon, oh, yeah. and yeah. I remember seeing they did a studio recital poster where they all, like, imitated it with, like, holding just the bell or just the long joint, just and I thought it was, yeah, so hilarious i was like these students are awesome and just like <laughs> oh my gosh i would love that if i was their oh, teacher <laughs> it was so it was so amazing to see that poster in fact it's here in the studio right now um so they did it on their own yeah and uh <laughs> yeah we do a, we try to do a, a studio recital in the fall uh to get every you know everybody kind of up and running and okay with the idea of playing in public and uh yeah they did that on their own the best part about that is that um each one of their pictures absolutely depicts their personality. I mean, it's just, it's, it's uncanny how, how, just how clearly those, you know, like, of course, you know, uh, there's the one that's got the reed, just the reed. You know, <laughs> and it's very intense and darkly shadowed. And you know, one of my more lighthearted freshmen is playing the long joint like a guitar, you know. And so. <laughs> I loved it. I saw and laughed for a good while. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, but I want to go back to this um, notion of, you know, building to this point where the repertoire, um, I think you said it, it, it becomes a part of your voice and not something you're reading off the page. Um, so my favorite question to ask our guests is, what are your favorite pieces to play that can be solo or uh, orchestral or chamber? And what pieces do you find the, the easiest or maybe better wording is most gratifying to do that with? 
Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, but it's a, it's a great one. I, I find myself thinking about it all the time. I mean, I, sometimes I split pieces into things that I like to listen to uh, and then things that I like to play because uh, they're not always the same. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, we're doing a, a concert series this week at Baton Rouge of classical era stuff. And I'm struck how much I still enjoy the challenge of the transparency of Mozart and Beethoven. Um, it's just, it shows you so much about what you can and can't do. And, um, it's, it's humbling to play. Um, I, I guess it can kind of seem boring sometimes, but it, uh, I find myself always enjoying that. I've had some of my more satisfying performances have been those Mozart serenades, uh, both C minor and E flat. Um, just as there's some kind of joy in that music, um, that is, I don't know. It's it's palpable, and I really enjoy playing. His writing for the bassoon is just just about perfect in some ways. I love playing those. Um, as far as bassoon repertoire, I find myself frustrated most of the time. Um, the bassoon is not an instrument that you know stands up to the piano very well, and uh, I find I'm I enjoy myself much more in uh, the chamber music setting. And uh, I'm very lucky to have colleagues that like to do chamber music here, and we do a fair amount of it. Um, the Reed Trio, I wish I know you guys know, uh, while it's deeply challenging from an endurance standpoint, is a pretty satisfying ensemble. Um, I really enjoy playing in that group. Uh, we just, I say I don't know how to answer this question, but we just played the Mozart Piano Quintet, and that may be about my favorite piece um, to play. It's the, here again, there's just a kind of joy in the music that um, is really great. Orchestrally, um, I mean, Shostakovich, I, it's, it's hard to get any better than that with these long solos, these long lyrical solos. And then the, you get to explore the deeply sarcastic side of the instrument too, um, which I, not in a funny way always, you know, I, I enjoy the fact that it's taken, I mean, there's just, there's a range of emotion there. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's what drew me to music in general is that there's all this kind of kaleidoscope of emotion that we don't necessarily have great words for. And I feel like his music along with Mahler has just got a lot of those shades in there. And I enjoy that. I mean, as a, I was drawn to the bassoon, I think because it's a chameleon in a certain way and that there's this just kind of a wide range of color that you can create with the instrument. And so any repertoire that really allows me to explore that, whether, um, I know a lot of people have talked about the Bach partita here. That's, here again, another great challenge uh, to play. There might be a love-hate relationship with that piece um, because it here again, it kind of shows you where you are. But uh, I find that it, in a good way, in the positive part of that is that it shows me where I am and every time I come back to the piece, I, I find the piece, I find myself different. Uh, you know, like I don't, I look at my markings and I go, huh, I don't hear it that way anymore. And so kind of returning to it helps me kind of figure out where I am and what I'm listening to at that moment. That's, I think that's the sign of great, a great piece, whether it's Bach or, you know, who, Jenny Brandon, whomever. It's like a piece that will, you can keep growing and coming back to and finding something in, you know, it's got that kind of depth to it. And uh, that's kind of the, maybe the broad answer is that any piece that does that, I think I can, I can get on board with playing. Yeah. What is your uh, favorite memory of a past performance? Oh, you know, I thought about this a lot because I know that you guys ask this question all the time and it's, I think this is like the hardest question. Um, I've got a, I've got a couple that I can talk about. Um, I think maybe three. Uh, so I had the privilege of playing uh, a concert of the Mozart serenades with the Cincinnati Orchestra chamber players. Um, and aside from, you know, just being able to play with, anytime you're in a room with people that are better than you, uh, you're in a good place, you know? Mm -hmm. You're, you're going to learn something. And that, uh, Marty Garcia, who's the associate principal, was playing, and he's just, I mean... I don't know if a lot of people know who he is. He's a he's an amazing bassoon player, just a, a wonderful uh, human being. Um, 
and I learned a lot playing with him. But I also had one of those experiences that I think we get kind of numb to because we hear so many sounds and we hear so much chromaticism. Not that I'm that reactionary. I'm, I'm down with chromaticism. Uh, <laughs> but we played it in this church, and we played the C minor first. And then we played the opening chord of the E flat, and it was just like a thousand pounds had been lifted off my shoulders because it's just such a stark change of color. And I think it's something that people were really in tune with and maybe we still are, but that was the first time I remember being like really consciously aware of that level of color and that level of change of color. And it was a really, I mean, I felt it physically in my body that like kind of, um, relief of the darkness of C minor <laughs> being washed away by E flat. And I thought that was really cool. I, I thought that I was like, that's, you know, sometimes we get a little bit separated from the power of what we do. Um, we get lost in the weeds and uh, a certain amount of performing is, you know, not being, you know, not being swept up with the power of it because if you're too swept up, you can't maybe, um, give it to your audience in the way that, that it needs to be. Right. Uh, but it was, a, it was a nice moment for me to be reminded of that. Um, along those same lines, I was able to play, uh, I played the Poulenc trio, which is, you know, just a wonderful piece with Andy Parker, uh, who's at, um, UT Austin now and Daniel Pesca, um, who's, uh, I believe he's a freelancer in New York now and uh, a composer in the, at the Aspen Festival. And it was just one of those experiences where we sat down and from the first note, it just felt like we had been together for a long time. And that's, a, that's an incredibly rare feeling uh, to sit down and play with somebody and just feel like you already know and this has nothing to do with how, you know, how good somebody is, supposedly. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a deeper thing. And we got done reading it, and uh, the director of the outreach program had walked by, and he's like, so, can I book you guys for a concert next, like, tomorrow? And we had just read through the piece. Um, because it already had, it just, it had that feeling of an old friendship to it. Mm -hmm. And here again, that's it, it, it's, it was just kind of an aware, it was like these moments of, like, you know, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Um, where, you know, this is somebody, this is a group of people that's rather special. And so we got a we did a few other concerts um, during our time in Aspen, but always, um, as I get older, I, I keep trying to cultivate those relationships and find excuses, although I haven't played with Andy in quite a long time, um, find excuses to work with people that I f feel that with. Because I think there's just... I think that comes across in the music, you know, there's a, a, a kind of um, deeper resonance to that. Uh, and then lastly, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, I want to, again, in Aspen, I had the experience of playing with, um, I won't mention this person's name, but a, a major uh, principal. And I was really young. This is kind of, this is before in my undergrad. And this person just kind of showed me everything I didn't know. And uh, while it was kind of a traumatic experience, so to speak, um, when it was happening, it was someone earlier mentioned, you know, all those things that people told you, I think it was Eric in the last interview, all those things people told you that, you know, you weren't quite ready to hear that kind of stayed with you for a long mm, time. Mm -hmm. And this per still, there are still things this person said to me that they come back and I go, oh, that was <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he wasn't being... I, I, I mean, I think at the time, my ego interpreted it as being mean. I don't think he was being mean. I think he was being very direct and just very honest about what he thought I needed uh, as a player and that I, what I wasn't doing at that point. You know, and and I, in the summer festival, you wouldn't really have that much time to give all that information. Well, so. and, we were, and we were playing, um, you know, very we were classical repertoire here again, very transparent repertoire. And this player is very fine, very fine player who had great command of, of their instrument, you know, someone that really knew how to, how to play. And, uh, you know, I mean, to give you an idea, I think Dick Woodhams was the oboist at the time. And like, oh so, like, God. like on, on par. Right. 
And so, yeah. you know, I, I just didn't have the control. And to play second bassoon, which is incredibly important in any orchestral setting, much less classical, where, you know, I'm a motor and a tonic. And, you know, if I don't have my stuff together, you know, nobody really has a chance. Um, but that, that, I mean, that, that experience, I mean, just, it was, it kind of, I don't know, it set me in motion to, to like figure some things out that I needed to figure out. And I'm really grateful to that. I don't think I, you know, it's, I would might be where I am without that person, but it certainly like started some balls rolling for me. Um, so I know that we sometimes people talk about like wonderful transcendent performance. That was, that was definitely a painful set of uh, performances for me. But once I got over the pain of it, I was able to kind of mine all this stuff. Out of, and I still use some of the things this he told me I still use. I mean, they're just spot on about, you know, how maybe poor rhythm is actually derived from, you know, poor articulation. So that maybe more that you don't really understand how to make the instrument speak when you want it to, that, you know, can manifest itself as bad rhythm. And so that you're, especially if this like kind of chronically late rhythm, you know, is actually not really a rhythmic problem. It's an articulation air problem. And, uh, you know, being able to see that in my students is extremely helpful. And to see it in myself was, you know, obviously important. So, yeah, I think that those are those stick out in my mind. Um, there, I'm sure I'm forgetting many others, but those seem important to me. Man, Daryl, this has been invigorating and galvanizing. I can't wait to push stop on the record and go grab my horn and just, yeah, I'm ready. This has been awesome. But um, as we wind down, where can our listeners follow up with you and find you on the internet? Oh, well, I'm a Luddite. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's tough. Actually, uh, I mean, I'm on Facebook. We have the LSU website. I actually don't have my own website right now. It's something I've been working on. Um, I think my own demands of quality keep me from really... Uh, I'm very, very self-critical of my own recordings. And so I don't have a lot of them that I <laughs> like to let out. Uh, I think there are some on YouTube if people are interested in kind of seeing what's out there. Uh, but that's something that I should probably remedy. And um, having listened to um, other people talk about it and kind of explored other people's websites, I think, you know, like uh, we just had Joey Grimmer come through. He's got a wonderful website. So I should probably talk to him and get that work going. If you really uh, want to get in contact with me, I mean, honestly, email, which is just my name at lsu.edu, is a great way. And I try to be pretty prompt with responding to that. And uh, thank you guys for reminding me that I need to, need to have a presence <laughs> in the world. <laughs> well, Daryl, thank you so much. This has been really amazing. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to share this with our listeners. Well, thank you guys so much. And I, I, I can't wait to see you both whenever that may be. So thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us for episode seven. I hope you enjoyed the really wonderful interview with Daryl Hale. And you can find us online at all of our social media. So that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Double Read Dish. You can also go to our website, www.doubleReaddish.com. You can email us at doubleReaddish at gmail.com. And actually, a new feature is our YouTube channel. So if you're not used to dealing with SoundCloud or iTunes, or if you know someone who you think might enjoy the podcast, send them our episodes via YouTube. That's a new way that you can access our content. Thank you to our sponsors, and thank you for listening.